Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. It's February 2nd, so happy Black History Month, everyone. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Thanks, Kim. So there is a lot of news coming out of Uganda this week. And each story is seemingly independent, but it's all related in the big scheme of things because jostling for the 2021 presidential elections has already begun. And the fact that the 2021 elections are shaping up to be the most competitive ever for longtime ruler President Museveni is an interesting phenomenon in itself. And it's related to a host of factors, including the increasingly youthful and urban population's opposition stance and willingness to take to the streets in protest. So last week, the state TV station unveiled a glitzy biopic entitled 27 Guns, which reenacts Museveni's 1980s revolt against President Milton Obote just before the country's Liberation Day holiday was celebrated this year. This film is widely seen by the opposition as a propaganda campaign to bolster support. Hmm. On this topic of movies, I did want to say that I'm really excited about a new film that recently premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. It's an adaptation of the book of the same name written by Malawian William Kam Kwamba and Brian Mueller. The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind is a coming-of-age story following the challenges and triumphs a boy and his family faced during a famine in Malawi in 2001. The movie is Chiwetel Ejiofor's directorial debut, and he insisted that the movie be filmed in Malawi. One of the main characters, William's sister, is played by Malawian actress Lily Bonda. Black Girl Nerds has a great review and synopsis of the film, but folks who are interested can also watch the trailer, which is available online. I can't admit how many times I've watched it myself. I just love the beautiful scenery. And for once in a major film trailer, I get to hear significant dialogue in Chichewa, one of you know the most widely spoken languages in Malawi. So I'm really excited to see the film. And for those of us in the U.S., it's going to be released on Netflix on March 1st. So you can mark your calendars. Yeah. But going back to Uganda, Rachel, there's one thing I don't know if folks saw that Museveni's government has installed security cameras across Kampala in October, right? So talking about filming in a very different way, right? And Museveni actually tweeted a picture of himself standing in front of a bank of monitoring screens, pledging that this would help to fight urban crime and then suggested that more may be installed throughout the country, right? So not only is Big Brother watching you, but I'm going to celebrate it and show the world that I'm watching you. Pretty big signal that that folks are being watched. Exactly. So Museveni's unveiling this new film about himself, putting up these monitoring security cameras across the capital. And this is all in relationship to what we've been following here on Ufahamu Africa, related to the rise in urban protests across Uganda and the phenomenon of the pop star and politician Bobby Wine, who has really turned into a lightning rod for dissent. So this week, we have reports that Bobby Wine is seriously considering a run for the presidency. Mm. In public comments, Wine is focusing on the fundamentals, getting out the vote. He said that dictatorships have thrived in Africa by suppressing young people. And so for him, getting young voters to the polls could help change the game. And he'll be focusing on both registration and turnout. So while a lot can and will happen in the next two years, this early sparring suggests that the opposition has time to mobilize and to coalesce. But Museveni, as we all know, is an experienced autocrat in dealing with dissent and has many, many tools of the state at his disposal, as his recent social media attacks demonstrates. Importantly for the citizens of Uganda, 
Experimental research by Kristen Mikulich and Guy Grossman recently published in the American Political Science Review suggests that politicians deliver more and improve their performance in constituencies that are highly competitive. So when their performance is obscure to this constituents, they're likely to shirk their duties. If we expand this to the presidential level, this mounting competition between Bobby Wine and Museveni and the national discussion of performance of the ruling party should lead the government to focus on its performance for the average voter in the two-year run-up to the next elections. Hmm. Well, we'll have to keep watching what kinds of policy interventions Museveni is going to come up with, he and his NRM government. Exactly. So one thing I want to point our listeners to is kind of since it's Black History Month, I wanted to point our listeners to some of our our legacy episodes that we still have up and available for folks to listen to. So a couple of years ago, we actually had a series of Black History Month episodes, starting with episode five with TJ Talley, episode six with Melissa Graboyas, episode seven with Michelle Moyd really fascinating episode on colonial on colonial soldiers in East Africa. Um, and also episode eight with Dan Magaziner, who's a historian at Yale, talking about his work. So that'll be a great roundup to, to look back on. And we hope to focus on more historians later in the month as well. And other issues or other episodes that are upcoming are going to follow up on some of our discussions on Nigerian politics, such as episode 52 with Matthew Page and our upcoming talk with Nicholas Kerr about the elections. We are keeping a close watch on the unfolding process in Nigeria this month. So this week, just three weeks out from the election itself, there is major cause for concern as President Buhari suspended Nigeria's chief justice, Judge Walter Ohengen, the head of the Supreme Court. He is facing charges for allegedly failing to declare his personal assets before taking office in 2017. The main opposition challenger to Buhari, Atiku Abubakar, has called it an act of dictatorship. And opposition politicians have halted campaigning in protests. And the EU, the UK, and the US have taken serious issue with this removal of the Supreme Court justice, suggesting it could really cast a pall over the entire electoral process. Now, President Buhari knows very well how important judicial and electoral officials can be in elections. When Buhari convincingly defeated sitting incumbent President Goodluck Jonathan in 2015, it was impossible thanks to the high-quality independent electoral commission led by Professor Jaga, which withstood its incredible pressures from the president's administrative and security team as they realized their prospects were dimming. So Buhari's victory was made possible because Goodluck Jonathan tried and ultimately failed to displace Jaga at the head of the independent national electoral commission. Now Buhari, who's seeking a second term, has often been at odds with the judicial branch and accused the judiciary of frustrating his anti-corruption fight. As the head of the judiciary, Nigeria's chief justice plays a vital role in setting election disputes, and the suspension came just hours before the chief justice was scheduled to swear in members of the electoral tribunals. So this suspension leads to many, many questions about the electoral process ahead. Somewhat related to this, the U.S. and the U.K. announced earlier this week that they were not going to give visas to any Nigerians who were implicated in any sort of electoral irregularities in this year's elections. So the mm-hmm. kinds of the kinds of pressure that they're putting on not just right the president say in in this particular decision that he's made about the Supreme Court justice but also in any of the people who may be implicated at the lower levels right who are committing some sort of um, irregularities at polling stations. Another thing I read in the news this week is some really big news that came out of Angola at the end of last month right with the government inter- 
introducing a new penal code, they at the same time decriminalized homosexuality. So what happened was Angola's parliament adopted its first new penal code since it gained independence from Portugal in 1975, and they removed a provision that was about, quote, vices against nature, which was widely interpreted to be a ban on same-sex conduct. So it's really exciting. Even um, Human Rights Watch had had a celebratory piece about it. And I think that as we have featured in this week's episode a scholar of same-sex politics in Africa, it's just, it's really exciting to see another country on the continent making these moves towards rights and equality. That is really exciting news, Kim. Thanks for sharing that with us. And also, we can't wrap up the news this week without mentioning another bit of visa issue from the United States. Um, In fact, quite surprising news to my mind is that the U.S. Secretary of State this week announced that the U.S. was imposing visa restrictions on Ghana, accusing the country of not cooperating in accepting its citizens ordered removed from the United States. So the Department of Homeland Security said in a statement that has ordered consular affairs in Ghana to implement visa restrictions on certain categories of visa applicants and that this category could be expanded if they are not compliant. So we're wondering how this might be expanding and whether we might generalize a bit to say the Muslim ban is becoming more of an Africa ban or does the U.S. have issues with one of the leading democracies on the continent? More to come on this story to be sure as we find out more information about the nature of that ban. Yeah, that's pretty disturbing. Surprising and disturbing indeed. So thanks, Rachel. Next week, we'll post links to what we've mentioned in this episode, as well as bonus links on our website, ufamuafrica.com. This week's interview is with Ashley Courier, professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the University of Cincinnati. We asked her about her new book, Politicizing Sex in Contemporary Africa, Homophobia in Malawi. Her first book, Out in Africa, LGBT Organizing in Namibia and South Africa, was a finalist for a 2013 Lamba Literary Book Award. I spoke with Ashley at the annual meeting of the African Studies Association in Atlanta, Georgia, in November 2018. Welcome to Ufahamu Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. Your first book, Out in Africa, has really been an important text for my students because it's helped them not just to better understand LGBTQ organizing strategies, but it also gave them a framework for understanding social movement organizing more broadly. And I'm curious what sparked your interest in civil society and social movement organizing among sexual minorities in Africa. I began asking questions about LGBTI organizing while I was a master's student in English at the University of Pittsburgh in the early 2000s. I did an internship at Weaver Press with Irene Staunton-McCartney. And I was, at that point in time, I was interested in African women's writing and particularly tracing it to McCartney's work with Zimbabwean authors. Mm -hmm. And while working with her at Weaver Press, I had the opportunity to go to the Zimbabwe International Book Fair and represent the press there and talk to authors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the book fair was a site of Mugabe's anti-gay vitriol in August of 1995. And I had originally wanted to return to Zimbabwe as a sociology graduate student Mm -hmm. to study how gays and lesbians of Zimbabwe, known as gals, Mm -hmm. was negotiating 
the politicized homophobia that Mugabe and other ZANU-PF stalwarts were deploying. When colleagues, uh, Zimbabwean colleagues, advised me, I don't know that 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 Zimbabwe was probably the best place for you to engage in this kind of research because it might put activists at risk. I turned my attention to Namibia and South Africa as country case studies. One thing that had always puzzled me about social movement theory, which is which tends to be dominated by scholars in the global north, yes, and of, with case studies from the global north, yes, I was really um, I was chafing mm. <laughs> against the, these theoretical frameworks with respect to the cases of LGBT organizing in Namibia and South Africa. So I wanted to push against some of the dominant assumptions Mm -hmm. that all activists and social movements wanted to be publicly visible in a somewhat uniform, unidirectional way. So I wanted to complicate that assumption about what visibility meant Mm -hmm. and also think think seriously about invisibility Mm -hmm. as a space of political productivity for activists. And also, but also think about, well, you know, there are times when activists where visibility and invisibility have unintentional consequences that can be harmful and even produce hyper-visibility or lead to movement uh, demise. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the theoretical framework that I tried to create in gender. So that's one, that's at least theoretically, that's where I was trying to go. And also be hopeful, right? Because I think, I mean, at least at that point in time with my scholarship, I was really upset with Afro-pessimist portrayals of the African continent as hopelessly homophobic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and documenting the on the ground work that LGBT activists have engaged, you know, have been engaged in Mm -hmm. for more than 20 years was a response to that Afro-pessimist. Right. That we we read about in the the media, certainly. And out in Africa, Drew, on your research, as you said, in Namibia and South Africa, but I wonder if you've seen similar strategies used by groups in Malawi, which is the country of focus in your latest book, Politicizing Sex in Contemporary Africa. Yes. In fact, one example in terms of thinking about trying to sidestep uh, hyper-visibility yeah. and unwanted visibility. Some gay rights activists in Malawi in 2006-7 organized a group that's now, I mean, that's we know now as um, the Center for the Development of People. Mm-hmm. Set up. Set up. Mm-hmm. And if anybody, if anybody encountered this organization, Center for the Development of People, it's not a clear from the outset that this is a gay rights organization, right? right? right. So that, the cloaking of the mm. organization in this innocuous with this innocuous name right. is a way to protect constituents, to mm-hmm. protect staff mm-hmm. and volunteers, and not to you know rile up people who live in the neighborhood. I mean, where where an organization might have offices, right? right? So that's an example of that yeah. crossover. And what do you hope readers of Politicizing Sex in Contemporary Africa will take away from it? Well, first, I I hope that the book will convince readers that. Politicized homophobia not only affects the lives of gender and sexual minorities, Mm -hmm. but also ensnares different social movements, namely uh, LGBT, Mm -hmm. human rights, HIV AIDS, Mm -hmm. and women's rights movements. Mm -hmm. Because I think that 
politicized homophobia from the outset, it seems like that those who deploy homophobia are are only targeting those people they perceive to be sexual minorities. Mm -hmm. But in fact, homophobia as a discourse doesn't actually really rely on only the figure of, you know, a sexual minority person. It it can actually, anybody who opposes the government can be a scapegoat for homophobia. So a member of the political opposition in Malawi could very easily, and we see this in the example of like Ralph Kasambara in 2012, who was attacked in his home. And this is in the aftermath of the July July 20th. Yeah. Yeah. The July, yeah. The July protests. Trisha Kaliati, a government minister at the time portrayed Kasambara's scuffle Mm -hmm. with a group of armed men as he portrayed it. She portrayed this as he was a spurned lover. Yes. And and, and these men were responding with violence because they were rejecting his sexual advances, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no, I mean, there she, she was using the, the the backdrop of the July tw- uh, 20th protests mm-hmm. from 2011 and the ongoing narrative about the protests as a way to get gay rights legalized exactly. in the country, right? Yeah. As a way to besmirch the reputation of Ralph Kasambara. Now, you've mentioned politicized homophobia, and this anyone who has read your work will be familiar with this term, but maybe some of our listeners might not know what you mean by that. Right. So when you talk about politicized homophobia in Malawi and elsewhere in Africa, what, what exactly do you mean by that? I mean that it's a collection of discourses that political elites can deploy to punish gender and sexual diversity activism, to corral different oppositional social movements, mm-hmm. and to buttress and consolidate political authority of elites. Right. The content of, of homophobia in that regard uh, changes over time. Mm-hmm. It's often contradictory. So, for instance, you might have, in one instance, a person deploying politicized homophobia saying that same-sex sexuality is an African Yes. But then also saying that it's unchristian right. and thereby engaging in a form of a historical amnesia and forgetting that Christianity is a, you know, a foreign import. Yeah. Homophobia as a discourse and set of practices is often contradictory. It's messy. It often doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. but it really it's a it's a chameleonic and that's I'm quoting uh, Birick's work mm-hmm. that homophobia as is, is it ch- changes and yeah. conforms to new opportunities that emerge right now between the publication of your two books the number of southern africans communicating via social media through platforms like facebook or whatsapp has significantly increased. And I'm just curious if through your research you have some insights on how that increase in social media use and access has had any influence on how sexual minorities in Southern Africa organize. I think that social media has been an incredible resource Mm -hmm. for not just activists, but also gender and sexual minority constituents trying to find one another. Yeah. And actually... It can create some a cloak of secrecy for some people that yeah. protects them, offering a form of anonymity and, as some social movement scholars might like to call it, a safe space. Mm-hmm. But 
On the other hand, social media can be vulnerable to yes. infiltration. Yes. And that's one thing I would worry about, right? Is yeah. as, as an activist, you know, how do you know if this person, if you don't know them in real life, how do you know that they're not actually some sort of, I don't know. Well, this plant. happened in, in um, 2013 in Cote d'Ivoire, in Abidjan. Mm-hmm. Local LGBT rights organization that also worked on HIV AIDS mm-hmm. had received a, I think it was a, a $50,000 or $60,000 grant from the French embassy. Mm-hmm. And they had a signing ceremony at the LGBT organization's office. It was a celebration. Lots of diplomats and activists attended. Well, some activists posted photos from the ceremony to their Facebook accounts. Mm. And some uh, Ivorian journalists, without activist permission, took those photos and then came up with a story that in a sense fabricated a story that Mm -hmm. the French embassy had given this organization money to promote marriage equality legislation in Cote d'Ivoire. Right, which they hadn't. No, not at all. What's your next project? It's incredibly depressing. (laughs) It is. Well, that's motivating. Yes. (laughs) Well, I'm excited about it. Yeah. But one thing that surprised me about the politicizing sex. I was really surprised to find that there is a group of discourses because I love newspaper data. I I collect it. I, 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 I don't know anyone who is better at <laughs> at collecting and examining newspaper data than you. I love it. So that you know, like thousands. I'm talking like almost two thousand newspaper articles between, published between ninety five in English right. published between ninety five and twenty sixteen. I have a smaller subset of articles that address sex in prison or sex in prison, same sex rape more generally. Mm-hmm. And it was really surprised that with at least with the sex in prison articles that they did not feed into politicized homophobia. Mm. They were like circumscribed yeah. and contained within the like the socio-political imaginary of the prison. Yeah. And I so I began thinking about, you know, what does it mean for discourses about prison sex and and sexual violence in carceral spaces to be left out of politicized homophobia. So that's led me to thinking about why haven't activists from across different social movements mobilized in response to prison sexual violence? And And I want to link that to politicized homophobia. I think that it's possible that politicized homophobia has completely saturated socio-political discourses and mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. in certain contexts mm-hmm. that it is keeping social movements from taking a question of prison sexual violence, whether it's children rights activists, feminists, human rights, mm-hmm. HIV AIDS, mm-hmm. and um, of course LGBT rights organizations from addressing prison se- sexual violence because who wants to be seen Again, this is visibility here. Right. Who wants to be seen as defending incarcerated men, right. right, convicts, right, from you know sexual violence? So, one thing I forgot to ask you about yes. the book that I really want to ask is about the cover. So, the cover art for your book. So, I'm going to tell you what I think it is. Okay, it's not totally clear. So, it looks like angels' wings. Oh. No? No. Okay. So so could you please describe for our listeners what artwork is on the cover of your book and maybe also share a little bit about the artist or how you came across the artwork? Finding artwork for a book about homophobia is, it's arduous. Yeah. I can only imagine. It, I 
am really, there are some books, I'm not going to name the book. Mm-hmm. It's a good book mm-hmm. that came out within the last couple of years. It's about sexual violence. And the cover art shows a disembodied figure on it. No. And it's about sexual violence. When it comes to homophobia, I don't want to have, you know, disembodied yeah. figures. I also, and because the book, I'm, in the book, I'm trying to dispel the notion that the African continent is a hotbed of right. homophobia. Right. I don't want to have images of anti-LGBT protesters from a place that is not Malawi, right? (laughs) right? I might have been corralled down that road. So I went with an abstract image. Mm -hmm. I experimented with some images of smoke because President Binguwa Mutarika's promise that he was going to smoke Smoke out out. protesters, right? In, 20, in 2011 and, and 2012, I, th- I thought that that might, could be a compelling visual. didn't really work. Actually, a colleague of mine, mm-hmm. uh, Kim Ray Taylor at um, the University of Cincinnati, she's an associate professor of fine arts. I find her abstract work to be incredibly compelling. Mm-hmm. And she worked with me on the cover design mm-hmm. over the summer. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they let me use one of her. I mean, she gave me permission to, to reproduce. It's actually a scribbling of hers. It's actually not, it's, it's not, it's like a sketch. It's not even something that she displays in museums and, or galleries. And she, a lot of her work is displayed in mm-hmm. a few, in, in, in re- galleries in the region. So I wanted something abstract mm-hmm. because I think that the jumbled, the messy image really, ev- you know, in, evokes the, the contradictory, messy logics of yeah. politicized homophobia. Yeah. And before we go, we like to ask our, our guests if there's anything that they've been reading or that they might recommend to our listeners. Paul Okabach's An Uncertain Age, The Politics of Manhood in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And it's about, I think it's about the making of manhood in Kenya. Yes. I want to read it. I haven't gotten to it, but I think it's going to be really helpful for thinking through, you know, what are the processes that distinguish you know, children from men, especially as it comes to the question of, it, of incarcerating adult uh, adult men with adolescent boys, yeah. um, at least in in some southern African some uh, southern African um, places. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our website ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a production created by Kimi Dion and currently sponsored by the Program of African Studies and the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University, as well as the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. Kara Stevick, Medill School of Journalism, Class of 2019, is Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama. Salama.